0: What's the hardest thing about writing? Well, it's getting started. Maybe you're having a hard time coming up with a story idea, or you're stuck on where to take your story next. If you want a way into a story or a way through, I have nine story starters to help you. This free PDF is full of story seeds and prompts to get you going. To download your nine story starters, go to nancypinuccio.com forward slash start. That's Nancy with an I, Pinuccio with two Cs, Pinuccio.com forward slash start. You have captivating characters, a page-turning plot, gorgeous imagery, but as soon as your characters start speaking your story falls flat. I'm Nancy Panuccio, and on today's episode of Writer Unleashed, we'll explore what you already know about crafting compelling, believable dialogue. We'll break down five elements to pay attention to, and I'll give you an exercise to bring it all home. So make sure you stay to the end. often as you drive to work, do the dishes, go for a walk, or try to sleep at night, do you have in your mind a private conversation with someone who's not there? Maybe as you anticipate an argument, a job interview, or a date, you rehearse over and over in your mind what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. We imagine what we could have said or should have said. Maybe we have an imaginary argument with someone based on something we imagine they said, thought, or did. Or we have an imaginary conversation with a boss or an ex. We tend to resolve conflicts, prepare for important conversations, and live out fantasies through highly- crafted imaginary dialogue. And these are scenes we play out in our head over and over. We're constantly revising what we want to say, what we wish we'd said, what we'd like to take back. And when we have these imaginary conversations, we might feel our heart rate quicken, or we might feel sad or angry. So as far as our body is concerned, these conversations are very real. We're actually working out a lot of our stuff this way. And through that process, we've learned to compress the dialogue to its essence, to do away with inessential throat clearing, the hi, how are you, the ums, all that Superfluous stuff, what my friend and author Roger Skipper once called "pass the meat and potatoes dialogue. We strip the exposition, all the excess. We craft our imaginary conversations for maximum impact to get a desired response, to move, to persuade, to entertain, to get what we want. But what about the conversations we have in real life? Our real life conversations teach us plenty about nuance and subtext and emotional charge, all things that make the dialogue in our stories real and compelling to our readers. Yet often the dialogue in our stories rings false. That's because we use it to spoon-feed the reader essential information, even when it's obvious that the characters already know those details. So in a story, we can do away with dialogue like this. David, wear your winter sweater. It's 19 degrees out, and we're expecting snow. It's mid-February, you know, and you'll be cold. No, in real life, we get straight to the point. David, put on your sweater. Now, often our characters are too articulate or way too polite with each other, even when they're in conflict. Yet, when we're emotionally charged, we are at our least articulate. We're not so in control. So here are five things to pay attention to. Number one, subtext. Our spoken dialogue is loaded with emotion. It's cloaked. We often dance around the meaning of what we say rather than say what we really mean. We're rarely direct, upfront, or rational. We get at things a slant. In the movie Little Children, there's this great scene. So, Brad is a stay at home dad to his three year old, and his wife Sarah is a filmmaker who works outside of the home. Now, Brad is supposed to be studying for his bar exam, but he's not, and his wife is probably onto him. She comes home one day after work, and her son runs up to her for a hug, and she says immediately, Did daddy forget to put your sunscreen on again? Now, we know she's not talking to her child. She's indirectly talking to her husband. That one line of dialogue reveals volumes about not only her borderline contempt for her husband and disappointment in him for being out of work, but her attitude about his parenting skills. Now, if you have a spouse, pay close attention to the way that you both speak in code. For example, Years ago, after spending a week house-sitting in a friend's palatial house in New York City, uh, my son made a reference to what he planned to do once back at our house. I quickly corrected him. We don't live in a house. We live in an apartment. His father confronted me. Why, he asked, are you saying this? What are you really saying? That our apartment is too small? That I'm not a good enough provider? Now, he had a really good point. Why did I feel the need to make that distinction between house and apartment? Obviously, house and apartment can be used interchangeably. The truth was, at that moment, I was feeling frustrated with him for having divided our 3,000-square-foot house into three separate apartments and renting two of those out to tenants. It wasn't that I resented the fact that we didn't occupy the whole house at the time or that our apartment, which happened to be the largest of the three, was too small. I felt unimportant that my child and I were not a priority to him. And all that spewed forth in my response to my son's casual mention of our house. But I couldn't articulate all that in any rational, calm way. I didn't have time to process it all. Instead, I detonated a little bomb. My partner picked up on it, and it was all in the subtext. So listen to what's underneath what you say and all those subtle perceptions you make about what others say to you. We are masters at both delivering and interpreting subtext. Number two, misdirection. Often, the movement of our real-life dialogue is random. Tensions are evaded. Subjects change without warning. Just as one person is being direct, the other dances away. We speak about difficult truths obliquely. Now, Lori Moore gets these nuances pitch perfect. Here's an example of misdirected dialogue from her novel, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? Now, in this scene, the narrator is in Paris. She's in bed with her husband, who's there on business. Now, listen for the different directions the two take and how they speak in metaphor. I'm not really looking forward to going home, I say now. Really? I feel disconnected these days in the house, in town. The neighbors say, hello, how are you? And sometimes I say, oh, I'm feeling a little empty today. How about you? You should get a puppy, he says sleepily. A puppy? Yeah, it's not like a cat. A puppy you can take for walks around the neighborhood, and people will stop and smile and say, ooh, look, what's wrong with your puppy? What is wrong with my puppy? Worms, I think. I don't know, you should have taken him to the vet vet's weeks ago. You're so mean. I'm sorry, I'm not what you bargained for, Daniel murmurs. I stop and think about this. Well, I'm not what you bargained for either, so we're even. No, he says faintly, you are, you are what I bargained for. But then he has fallen over the cliff of sleep and is snoring, his adenoids, a kind of engine in his face, a motorized unit, a security system like a white flag going up. Okay, so this dialogue reflects our natural tendency to leave tensions hanging rather than rush. resolution. We often change the subject. We answer questions with answers that aren't really quite answers. We carry on more than one conversation at a time. In Susan Scott's book, Fierce Conversations, she says something interesting that I think speaks to this matter that two people could be having two totally different conversations. She says, All conversations are with myself, and sometimes they include other people. So listen for that in the world around you. Number three, evasion. Listen to the ways we don't listen to one another. Charles Baxter says this, if you're a good writer these days, you pay attention to the way people don't pay attention. And one of those ways is through denial how often do we diffuse an unbearable truth by refusing to hear it, by ignoring it or minimizing it? Now, here's a a heartbreaking example that Charles Baxter gives in his book, The Art of Subtext. So this is a, a piece of dialogue from Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America, that, that really gets to this idea of diffusing an, an unbearable truth, denying and minimizing it. In this scene, Joe... Who's a married Mormon lawyer and closeted gay man finally gathers the courage to call his mother, Hannah, from a phone booth late at night and tell her the truth about himself. Now, he doesn't just plunge right into a confession, he skirts the issue first with some inquiries. So here's how it goes Joe, Mom, did Dad love me? Hannah, What? Joe, did he? Hannah. You ought to go home and call from there. Joe. Answer. Hannah. Oh, now really, this is maudlin. I don't like this conversation. Joe. Yeah, well, it gets worse from here on. Hannah. Joe? Joe. Mom. Mama. I'm a homosexual mama. Boy, did that come out awkward. Hello? 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 I'm a homosexual. Please, Mama, say something. Hannah, you're old enough to understand that your father didn't love you without being ridiculous about it. Okay, so at this point, Hannah instructs Joe to go home and get a good night's sleep. She substitutes a harmless subject for an inflammable one, the one that she can't face, the one she's not ready to face. Number four, cross purposes. Now, this is when one person refuses to respond directly to what the other person has just said. Now, cross purposes is another form of conflict. So both people want different outcomes. In Deborah Eisenberg's story, Mermaids, here's dialogue between mother and daughter. Now, for context, Kyla is trying to get out of sleeping over at the Lasky's house while her mother, a single mom, goes out for the night. So here's the dialogue. So why can't I just stay home by myself until you've eaten dinner, Kyla said. And what would you do for dinner, her mother said. I could have something... Kyla said, from the microwave, just like I do when you work late. Her mother stroked her hair. Just as I do. "Why not?" Kyla said. "Well, darling," her mother smiled gently, "because I need time to see my friends, just as you need time to see your friends." Okay, so later in this scene, we you know, we go through Kyla's thinking her way through the scene and later Kyla finally asks What friend do you need time to see? Stand up straight, darling, her mother said. You don't want to look like Margie Strathorn, do you? Okay, so you can see that both mother and daughter at are at cross purposes and they're trying to get the other one kind of on their side to see their viewpoint. But the mother, mom, is not even she's answering with a non-answer. She's she's ignoring the question and answering with something totally off topic. Number five, nonverbal dialogue. Now, we don't just hear what people say. We're constantly decoding nonverbal cues, inflections in tone, body language, facial expressions, micro facial expressions, eye contact, gestures, silences, pauses. We look for clues to see if the nonverbal communication dovetails with the spoken. And we do this every moment without ever giving it much thought. Now, experts say 70 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal. It's involuntary. We're not as in control of our nonverbal communication as we are in our, in, in what we actually say. So, for example, here's the beginning of the dialogue that takes place at the Lasky's dinner table. Again, from Deborah Eisenberg's story, Mermaids. How was everyone's day, Mr. Lasky said, which was the first thing he said every time Kyla had ever had dinner at the Laskys. He looked around the table. Richard, Richie raised his serious dark eyes and then lowered them again. Okay, so we can see the tension between father and son, and we see through Richie's body language, and it's a it's a very brief moment um, that he's intimidated by his father. And we could assume that he doesn't like his father very much. He may even be afraid of him. And you can see that there's a rift between the father and son. So I encourage you to listen to yourself in conversations and to tune into conversations you overhear. So here's a two-part exercise. The first part, spend a day listening to yourself talk and start recording the things you say in your notebook. Record some of the conversations you have with your friends, your kids, your spouse, the cab driver, Look for where you speak in code, where you dance around what you really want to say. The second part, eavesdrop on other people's conversations at the mall, online at the supermarket, in cafes, at home, during family gatherings. Jot some of it down. Listen for rhythm and cadence. Listen for the fragmented way people speak to one another. Listen for the interruptions. The point of this is to break your preconceptions of the way people speak, the things that they say, and the way that they say it. Now, keep in mind that story dialogue is not transcription. Our written dialogue shouldn't be a transcript of what an actual conversation could, did, or might sound like. The best dialogue is compressed. It's intentionally crafted. So pay attention to those nuances. This is all instruction for your writing. So keep this in mind. Number one, subtext. Number two, misdirection, number three, evasion, number four, cross-purposes, and number five, nonverbal dialogue. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope these five tips help you write compelling, believable dialogue. If you like this episode, please share it with other writers. And if you haven't yet, make sure to download my free character questionnaire to help you create multidimensional characters who defy stereotype. You'll find this at nancypinuccio.com slash free resources. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Till then, keep writing and I'll talk to you soon.